and during that those kind of final few minutes of the resuscitation at every two minutes every pause he would ask the question to the team congregated around that cot you know can anyone think of anything else we need to do am i missing anything you know and there may be the suggestion that we need to call the parents into to, to, the, to the hospital or you know maybe it was another shot of adrenaline that was needed but nevertheless there was that moment that everyone had the opportunity to contribute to that those final outcomes you're listening to the medical protection podcast real world series where we expose the pain points and explore how we navigate the complexity of healthcare today my name is dr najib rahman i'm an emergency medicine consultant in the nhs as well as a senior medical educator with mps In today's episode, we're going to try and better understand the meaning of quality improvement and how it applies to all of us. While many of us may have experienced the range of superficial, short-term and unsustained projects branded as QI, often in response to incidents or training requirements, it's important to recognize the real value that genuine inquiry and engagement can bring in supporting meaningful improvement and where the gains to be made are for us, our teams and our patients. Joining me today to explore these concepts further is Dr. Hisham Abdullah. Dr. Abdullah is a consultant paediatrician and head of Integrated Quality Improvement at Oxford University Hospitals, NHS Trust. So Hisham, I wonder if you'd be able to start off by describing your journey into quality improvement work for us. I mean, many of us who are aligned more heavily towards clinical practice may not fully really appreciate the value of QI. And in fact, many even might have a degree of antibodies towards such initiatives because the way it interferes and has negative experiences in our daily practice. So it'd be great to hear a bit about your story and how you got into this kind of work. Sure, Najib. Um, I think I probably started being interested in improvement pretty much as soon as I graduated from medical school, actually. I came out of Manchester University Medical School, very inspired, ready to kind of hit the ground running. And then... I have to say I was quite shocked at the the difference, the contrast between the care that I'd been trained to deliver, that we aspire to deliver, and and the care that that my patients were receiving. You know, I was seeing patients dropping really in in the chasms of the patient pathway that I was meant to be the steward of. And I was involved in a couple of clinical incidents early on as a, as a pediatric SHO where I guess I was what would be termed now as a second victim in, in those cases. And I, I think it really angered me both what the, was happening to them and, and what had happened to me. So I, I put a lot of work and effort into trying to do what we would probably call QI projects. But back then it was oftentimes an audit and then like an improvement initiative and then trying to do a re-audit if it ever was done. And and I have to say, to be, to be frank, it didn't really make much difference, if anything. And, and any changes that I were to make probably weren't sustained beyond my energy or, or lifetime in that department, you know, that I was rotating to. And um, I think I probably also to be honest, developed some antibodies and, and perhaps maybe even gave up on that by the time I got to my kind of penultimate year as, as, a, as a trainee. And then um, something happened which I hadn't anticipated, which was I was had the opportunity to take a year out of training to do uh, a leadership fellowship at the what was the Strategic Health Authority up in the Northwest back then. And I hadn't, you know, I don't think I, I went deliberately to look for it, but it, it ended up in my kind of in-tray and I thought, okay, 
I guess I'm not in a rush to become a consultant. Maybe I could I could apply for it. And I, I probably did still have somewhere in my heart an interest in trying to make things better. Um, and so I, I applied, and I was fortunate and surprised to be get it, to get that place on on that year out of training. And it was a transformative year for me in Egypt. So myself and and the other fellows on that program um, were taught about the technical aspect of of quality improvement. We talked about uh, leadership. I learned a lot about how to lead and how to be led. Um, and and actually, it really changed my mindset in terms of what the possibility of of, of quality improvement was when when done well. Although I have to say there was probably it was, it was slightly bittersweet as well, because on one hand, it was great to learn this stuff and learn that there is a science as well as an art to doing good improvement. But on the other hand, it was also kind of, you know, a, a little bit resentful that we we were only being told this stuff now. I was thinking, you know, how come, you know, it wasn't part of the core curriculum as a trainee or even as a, as a medical student. Um, and so I think probably as alumni from that group, a lot of us probably felt similarly. And many of us, myself included, went into, I kind of asked the question really, as well as learning this stuff, maybe we could teach it as well. So I, I went on to do a master's in clinical education and then further degrees in, in quality and safety. And, and I've had essentially kind of twin or kind of parallel careers really ever since as a clinician and a clinical lead, as well as an educator in, in quality improvement and leadership. And, and then finally, those two kind of roles or those worlds have combined or collided really in, in this current role in, in OUH where I'm now heading a QI team whose core purpose is actually to cultivate an environment where QI can flourish, training, supporting, mentoring, coaching and convening staff, you know, my peers, juniors to work on improvement programs and to align their projects with those organizational priorities that can make the most difference. So that's, I guess, a positive history of, of really what's got to me to where I am now. Oh, thank you, Hisham. I mean, that was really rich and a lot to reflect on, actually. And it seems to be there's something to be said about not parking your second interests away because I guess traditional medical education and training is very much funneled to an endpoint uh, where you get CCT, for example, and perhaps we don't get the chance to really... Um, delve deeper into those other interests and it sounds like the the leadership fellow really as you said was transformative in allowing you to expand some of those other skills and so perhaps there's a lesson to be learned about you know giving yourself time to invest in your journey and development along the way even though that might be outside the scope of a, a traditional training curriculum perhaps um i don't know if you agree with that or not but uh there's lots of lessons there, I think, in terms of how we progress our careers and how we feel fulfilled and manage resilience yeah. and burnout as well in some ways. Sure. I mean, I, I have to say I, I get so much pleasure from from learning and, and teaching. You know, I'm on my third master's course now. I'm, I, you know, I'm passionate about learning and imparting some of that knowledge to, to others. And and for many, in many ways, that is my kind of oasis during what can otherwise be a very kind of busy um shift or clinical week you know being able to actually cultivate um or, or really kind of delve into developing myself and others can can often be an oasis within within that week particularly when it aligns with my true purpose which is around improving care for for the patients and service users that we 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 were responsible for um and i think that does help certainly my um sense of well-being i think it has helped 
me avoid burning out. Um, I talked to a lot of my consultant pediatric colleagues, actually, and many of them actually would, I think, benefit from maybe taking a, a, a bit of time off the clinical coalface, perhaps maybe not dissimilar to how you're doing as well, Najib, and, and thinking about what are the supplementary things that they could do, bearing in mind their wealth of knowledge and experience and, and wisdom that could actually be making a difference at a systems level. And I think that's really what, where I feel I can most contribute during with that kind of extra supplementary interest. So, so let's bring it back to the system then, because, you know, that's, I guess, partly what we're having this conversation about. How do we you know, beat the system with QI, as we said? Yeah. So clearly there's more to it, right? When we're thinking about what gets in the way of getting the job done safely, getting it done well. And yet we all come into work to do a good job. You know, none of us come in to have negative outcomes for our patients ourselves. So what can we learn when we take a step back and we really try to understand what causes harm in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think this is probably best illustrated with a story um, in terms of what, what the causes of the problems or the, the systematic errors, but also what we can do to address it. So my, my current master's degree is in, in, in human factors and, and patient safety. And, and, and I guess a, a quick one sentence summary of that is how do we make it easier to deliver good care and harder to deliver bad care is as a design principle that we want to instill within our kind of QI quality improvement redesign. So as I said, by way of an example, in my previous trust, I was director of postgraduate medical education. And every year um, as educationalists, we, we, we conduct a survey conducted by the GMC um, of our kind of trainee feedback. So there's a kind of that many of the listeners probably will have, will have completed all have seen. And, and in my previous trust, we, we had a number of kind of red flags come through um, last year. Um, from the core surgical trainees. So there was, there was some significant concerns, um, partly I think exacerbated by COVID, but also the ones that really alarmed me was around kind of bullying and undermining. Um, these, these are all anonymous. So I, I thought it would probably be useful to get a little bit more detail behind that. So I spoke to a couple of the core surgical trainees and and what they um, confirmed is, yeah, Dr. Abdallah, it's, it's really bad you know the culture's really horrible but it's not the the consultant surgeons that the problem it's those and forgive me for saying this Najib those any team who are bullying and undermining us and what they will often be doing to us is referring patients inappropriately you know surgical abdomens that aren't really surgical and and shifting patients and shifting blame and shifting those patients so this kind of essentially um and if we refuse these referrals, then we'd get they'd get their senior consultant colleagues um, to to kind of undermine us and, and and shift these patients down the corridor to us. So I said, okay, well, let me go and speak to those ED teams because I, I know them. They're, they're not bad people, and it'd be good to understand what their context is. So I went to speak to the ED team and, and spoke to the clinical lead, and and she concurred. She said, you know, Hisham, it's really bad, but it's not the us bullying the surgeons it's the surgeons who are bullying us actually and what they are doing is refusing to take these patients you know uh, who are clearly got surgical problems and we have uh, got the pressure that they don't necessarily see of all these patients backing up in our department and and that is causing real animosity and she described it really quite visually as you know running battles in the corridor so this kind of turf war that was going on and, and, and actually, the key bit here is actually this is the disadvantage this is, or, the, or the problem this is calling for the patients themselves who, who are falling in those cracks I described earlier on. So, so here we are with this kind of dilemma. We've got 
two teams, both good people, both coming to do uh, the best job they can, but a, an, a culture and an environment which isn't fit for them or for the patients that they, they are responsible for. So, so where does QI fit in with this? So with a, a QI mindset, what we are looking for is what are the systematic features that are leading to these poor behaviors, poor practices, and, and poor outcomes. So typically with a QI project, what you'll do is you identify your stakeholders, you bring them together, and, and oftentimes thinking about a, a shared aim and then developing a kind of a pathway mapping process. And that's where we went. And I was able to convene these individuals as a kind of honest broker, I suppose, as, 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 a, as because I, I don't, I'm a pediatrician, you know, I, I'm, I don't necessarily fit within one tribe or the other. So it probably put me in a good position to be able to do that. And what I could see was actually, in many ways, this was um, system was perfectly designed to deliver the outcomes it delivers. That's a kind of one of the kind of big totemic uh, um, improvement statements. Um, so it's a lot easier to get a, a CT abdomen in A&E, for example. You can get it within an hour. But as soon as that patient has been moved over to the surgical team down the corridor to the surgical assessment unit, it could be four, six, eight, ten, twelve hours if that CT abdomen hasn't been done to get it done at that point. Which, if it turns out that this isn't a surgical cause, then the surgeons are often left with this patient um, trying to refer on to the medics, who themselves are then reluctant to, to extend their safari ward round even further to the SAU. And so that in itself causes more problems and, and more kind of backlogs, so to speak. So the intervention that we put in place, which is relatively simple kind of thinking back on it, was actually what we arranged is a... Um, a service level agreement, an SLA, such that those CT abdomens could get done a lot quicker in SAU than they would have done otherwise. Not quite as fast as they would have got done in A&E, but nevertheless, quicker, quickly enough to be able to make a fast decision, and if necessary, that patient moved on um, and, and, and referred appropriately. And, and by doing that, what, what we've achieved is um, fixing the pathway and thereby preventing some of those unwanted behaviors. And actually, what was really nice to hear from those trainees who I kind of stayed in contact over the following few months is what difference that made. We, we did a whole bunch of other stuff as well, but, but that was clearly one of the big interventions that was really about using that kind of dispassionate approach to understanding the system, looking at what the contributors are to those changes, and then deciding on sometimes very small but significant leverage points that you could then press on to have that disproportionate impact across the, the system that we're trying to, 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 to solve. That's fascinating, Sham. And I think, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but essentially it was able to break down where the value proposition was and what was, I mean, as you said, people were very entrenched in their own view, you know, one which was a blanket kind of approach to say, you know, we need to get these CTs done. Otherwise we're going to be, you know, struggling with our patient caseload and flow. And likewise, the other team saying, actually, the CT is not my problem. You know, we just need to get these patients through. Mm -hmm. But actually, where it was missing in that is, well, where are the value-add components in that patient journey? And by able to strip it, stripping that down, able to kind of pace it in a more reasonable way with a service level agreement, that only improved patient care. But it also looks like it really improved the kind of psychological safety and the, and the, and the kind of affect and the mood of some of the teams as well, and, and perhaps allow them to have a bit more dialogue for maybe future, you know, future issues that might arise, I guess. Yeah, and that, that last point is, is really important as well. So although it was a technical fix, actually what was perhaps more valuable, and, and certainly for me, one of the more gratifying things was is those kind of relational 
changes that happened. You know, when you sit down and break bread with someone and, and recognize actually, you know, they've got problems that we might be able to fix and vice versa. You know, the surgeons were able to share, share that actually they're not spending all their time sipping coffee, but actually many of those surgical trainees have had their training decimated by COVID. And actually those precious moments that they have in theater, which are being interrupted by ED uh, referrals, actually was, was really quite kind of um, problematic for them. And sharing some of those experiences as the ED would be sharing about, you know, the pressures that they are under actually meant there was a, a much stronger foundation for other problems to be solved. And, and we, we set up a kind of little shadowing um, opportunity for them, kind of reciprocal shadowing, which also kind of built on some of those relational issues. So, so yeah, totally both those points in the G, but kind of value stream mapping, understanding where the value added are within the system and what can we do to maximize those and, and reduce waste. That's, I guess that's the key thing. But secondly, um, you know, QI is, is they say 80% relational, 20% technical. So building on that relational and, and deliberately thinking about those relational aspects was, was 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 part of the ongoing solution. So this is definitely kind of a, you know, try to make sure you've got your you know, proverbial QI hat on. It allows you to think slightly differently, doesn't it? And I, I remember when we were speaking at another point, you mentioned this term, which I really caught it on to, and I, I hope I can steal from you, is there a right cause analysis? Uh-huh. I was wondering if you could, Share a bit about that story, um, you know, for our audience, because I think that was a really powerful story about understanding mm-hmm. how to to look into something that would normally be done very negatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is something I, I only kind of learned to do recently, actually. So this is after, again, through my kind of own studies and, and looking at um, what we call um, safety too. So looking at where, where things go well as, as a way of understanding systems and then asking the question, you know, why did it go so well? <laughs> you know, how can, and what can we do to make it go this well every time? Which is very different to our normal clinical governance systems, which are very much focused on the other end of that kind of, you know, parabola, you know, uh, at the clinical incidents and, and the never event. So actually focusing on, 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 on that, the extremely good stuff is actually a really good source of uh, insight, but also energy. You know, when 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 we've conducted these, as I said, rather than root cause analyses, right cause analyses in the past, it oftentimes draws people in rather than the opposite. And and one of the first ones we ran was when um, in my previous trust we set up a, a kind of a, a learning from excellence uh, reporting system, and and we had two reports come through. So I think other, some trusts call these, um, there's different terminologies that we use, but those, those, those were, that was our one. But there was two reports that came through and then a third one concurrently all about the same incident. I thought, wow, there's something very interesting here. We've got three incidents, both, all positive incidents, you know, excellence reports all around the same occurrence. And that what was even more shocking was that they all related to the death of a, a child, of, of an infant. So we're saying, well, how can you know, staff were nominating each other, unbeknown to one another, actually, as it turned out, all about the same incident. So that really raised my curiosity, which is why we thought we'd run that kind of right cause analysis. And so we, um, I conducted interviews with several individuals involved in that incident. And what the story transpires was that this was a, a neonate on, on the neonatal unit who had an inborn error in metabolism, who had died tragically on that night, it was, all, it was probably always was going to die. That I think it was it was it was a condition that was that she was never going to survive from. But actually, what was really interesting, as you read the reports, is that clearly several of the members of staff who reported one another were, were chimed on this idea or this understanding that everything that could have been done for this child was done for this child. 
that was a real sense of that. And when I asked the question as to why why that happened, what they described is a resuscitation that, that was led, and it happened by one of our senior trainees, which is probably significant. We might mention this later. And during that, those kind of final few minutes of the resuscitation, at every two minutes, every pause, he would ask the question to the team congregated around that cot, you know, can anyone think of anything else we need to do? Am I missing anything? You know, and there may be the suggestion that we need to call the parents into to, to, the, to the hospital or, you know, maybe it was another shot of adrenaline that was needed. But nevertheless, there was that moment that everyone had the opportunity to contribute to that those final outcomes. And so for me, there was something really important in terms of the learning that came from that in terms of how do you include the members of the resuscitation team in decision making in, in that way that really um, flattens the hierarchy and enables the best outcome that could be made for that patient arrive. And it meant that in the end, the parents were at the bedside when they would not necessarily have been. It meant that we'd exhausted all the potential opportunities to, to all the potential treatment options and, and those staff members were able to say that message that I just conveyed to you to, to the parents was, was, was comfort and, and, and the baby died with dignity. Wow, okay. So there's a lot to unpack there from both those stories. One from, you know, about the surgical trainees and obviously, um, you know, the team working and dynamics around a resuscitation attempt and the inclusiveness of decision-making. But from both of these, and, and I, I, you know, you've known me for quite a while, you know that I dabble in humanitarian response work and one of the critical functions in humanitarian response is around coordination, collaboration. And in both these situations, there seemed to be this really powerful role of facilitation uh, that you yourself played or other members did. So, you know, is that integral to QI? I mean, what happens if you don't have that facilitation role? You know, if, um, is how critical is that to improving outcomes? And what would happen if that role wasn't fulfilled? It'll be good to get yeah. your views on that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I, and I think that in, in many ways, um, the, and, and it's, it seems a bit strange for me to say this, the problem is, is because although QI is good quality improvement is integral to it to involve the people who deliver the care to improve the care, you know, that the, the, the understanding a correct understanding is that those individuals who know the service the most intimately are the ones who are most likely to be identified both the flaws and and and, and have experienced the the frustrations perhaps with 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 where it didn't work but also can sometimes come up with the best solutions because they may have tried things they may have you know adapted it or kind of um you know kind of may have developed hacks themselves and how they have they've done things so that's it's, it's really integral to good quality improvement and that's where you go for ideas and innovations and potential solutions to to fixing those kind of systematic problems but or and the the, the also the key the, the the problem with those individuals doing that thing is that because they are so intimately entwined in that service provision it's much more difficult for them to take a helicopter view and understand both what are the what are the things that are contributing towards those problems, but also how, and this is really important and, and most often neglected actually, how their fixes might actually cause unintended problems elsewhere. So that their hack, you know, 
I don't know, an IT fix that they've put in place might be great for them, but actually that might make it really terrible for the digital team who now has yet another system that they have to try to kind of invigilate. So, so having someone who's able to take that helicopter view and getting people to think differently about what those unintended consequences are, thinking about them in advance, anticipating those particular problems is, is really crucial. So, and, and I'll give you a third story just to exemplify that. So one of my most recent coaches, she is a chief registrar at my trust and she was working on a leadership program recently um, and her improvement initiative was really around trying to expedite discharge from the ambulatory assessment unit that she was working on. So her kind of big idea and that of her team were all around how do we discharge patients from the AAU to the discharge lounge. So how and, 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 and their kind of initial starting point was let's see if we can get um, as many of these patients out to the discharge lounge or the transfer lounge, sorry, uh, by midday. So that was that was their, their initial aim. But what, what I, I did through coaching her is again I had to think a little bit her and, and the team rather about what, what actually the consequence of doing that. Because all, all you've really done, although you've you've reduced reduced the headache and potentially you, you've allowed more patients to come up from A and E, which was which was which was good and, 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 and potentially could improve flow. All that's really done is also push the same problem up the corridor to another department within the same organization um, who are then having to deal with, with with those patients and actually adds work in because you're going to have to um, process those patients a second time you know there's there's risk of errors mistakes whether it's in the medication or just transferring it so actually by adding an extra step it may well have alleviated your problem and it might actually make things a little bit better for, for flow to your part of the organization but actually from a from a, a value point of view, coming back to the point you were describing, Najib, or you, you know, you, you've not added actually act added value into the into into the process that you're looking for, and so actually what what I did was was coach her and the team into into actually a very different QI project in the end, which was all about improving um, the estimation around discharging. How do we get a more effective discharge pro, uh, EDD estimated date of discharge around AAU, and thereby help with kind of planning for that process so it's just it's just an, a nice example of, of a very valid and, and potentially quite significant qi project which would have made it better for the, that team but actually from a system point of view actually probably wouldn't make it better in many ways would have made it worse for, for, for the organization as a whole draining more resources oh, Hisham, i mean thanks so so this is really interesting because you know, we, we talked about the first case around the, the surgical trainee feedback and, and the interactions for there. We've kind of explored that pediatric resuscitation scenario and this last scenario around discharges. I mean, what strikes me is that, you know, we, despite what we want to describe, this is all about leadership and engagement and stakeholder engagement and participation. So you're not really trying to dampen down those responses that are held organically in different teams, but it's allowing them to think and have the headspace to think a little bit more broadly within the system. And perhaps that's what's often missing, isn't it, between a lot of the work that we do is that we we look at it in a very short term, you know, what, whatever we can see at the end of our own visual field, for want of a better phrase, you know, yeah. we, we find it hard to look beyond that horizon. But if everyone's doing the same thing, it becomes very difficult then to, to really make the changes required. And and what strikes me a little bit from all of this is then 
there clearly is an interconnectedness between some of these themes that often are talked about quite in siloed fashion. When we talk about leadership, we, we think of it, oh, that, that's the leadership person. You've got a QI department, you've got a governance department, you've got someone looking after well-being resilience and you know, training and safety. But, but really what comes across from those three stories is these are all kind of interconnected, are they not? You know, issues around you know, speaking up for safety and team working, issues around quality improvement and, and um, you know, value, value propositions for patient care. Is that, but, but then if, if, if that's not how it's often framed, you know, what are the risks if we don't get that, that, model, that mental model correct, that we're all part of the machinery in some ways and we all have cogs that are linked together? I mean, do you find in your experience that often people don't see this working together? For sure. And I think your, your point there about uh, kind of the, the, the connectedness between leadership and QI is, is essential to that. So in, in a way, you know, um, when, you're, when you're thinking about leadership or, or leading, the, the key question is where are you going to lead people to? And secondly, how are you going to get them there? And, and, and the answer to that second question is, is using QI, actually. You know, the, the, the principles around QI, around um, start with the customer, around a systematic use of tools and, and techniques to try to uh, ensure that the maximum benefit is, 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 is extracted from, from, from the system you're looking at, from looking at an insightful use of, of data, particularly time series data. All of those are, you know, you know cut and dried or, or kind of um, uh, QI tools, which are essential. But those QI tools them, themselves are useless unless there is a clarity around where you're pe leading people to. So that's that's the the interconnectedness, certainly in, in my mind, between between the two. Um, and uh, as I said that a few minutes ago, when I talked about kind of the relational aspect of QI, that itself is is a, um, a really important in in your your leadership approach to to bringing in change. Is a, is the best organisations in the country that um, that do QI have really built into their infrastructure a um, a way of building peer-to-peer -peer connections that allow discussions around quality of care, but also improving the quality of care to happen. So I'd commend the listeners to to look at a, a, a report that was just published last week, actually by Warwick Business School, which collated the or, or summarized a five-year program, a QI program that was run in five trusts across the country in collaboration with the Virginia Mason Institute. And what that program really vividly articulated from, from those from those five trusts who, who did the best, uh, had the best, best outcomes, was that there was consistency of leadership. There was inclusiveness of leadership in terms of integrating and uh, bringing staff into um, into those improvement ideas, as well as the systematic approaches to QI that I, uh, that we would be espousing. So both of those need to be in place. Both uh, both essential and, and neither of those sufficient. So no, that's that's given me a lot to think about in terms of you know our role as as senior. You know, I know everyone is a leader these days in some ways, but in you know it's. It's true. We all have roles to play, whether we're trainees or, you know, non-healthcare or senior physicians. But as we kind of started this conversation, if you recall, I mentioned the word antibodies to QI, and and I guess you know, as as we said, a lot of people's experiences tend to be improvement initiatives are triggered by some kind of incident. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think needs to change? 
in terms of how we prevent patient harm? You know, how do we really change the system when, when perhaps we're not all on the same journey that you've described in some of those you know, really positive cases? Um, is there anything else out there that we can use or, or stuff that's happening within the system to make UI better in how we respond to these incidents? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and, and I'm, I'm delighted that you've kind of raised this one because I think where my certainly understanding and, and growth has, has through quality improvement is, is with an understanding and an and a, and a increased awareness that actually at the heart of all good quality improvement is self-improvement, actually. It's through the process of trying to bring about change that we learn most about those systems where, where they're, they're dysfunctional and where, where they can be improved, but also crucially about our, ourselves as individuals, because that also, we, we are part of the system. There's, there was a great billboard I must once saw, which was um, a set of traffic lights. And, and the, the, uh, the, the point that was made is that next time you complain about traffic, remember you are traffic. And, and it's the same here. Next time you complain about the system, just remember you are part of that same system. So understanding how we are contributory factors to the, the malaise that is sometimes the health care is, is, is crucial if we're going to be able to be able to do that, to, 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 to make it, to, 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 to improve things. So really that using that, that mirror to view ourselves within the context in which we're working, I think is part of how do we address um, that paradox that you're describing and, and start change starts with ourselves, I think is, is perhaps the kind of concise way of looking at. And, and the final thing I'll say is, I think increasingly with the levels of, of burnout and, and, you know, the I think last month they had more people resigning from the NHS than any preceding month since the start of, start of its history. So we, we're in a, a, a crisis situation from, from workforce perspective. And I think coming back to the point I, was, I made earlier that actually using a QI lens to see where are the system failures and, and deliberately looking at how do we fix those pathway issues or resource issues, you know, access to um, individuals and, and teams such that it makes it easier to deliver good care in the way that I describe. It, it's going to be essential if we are going to have a sustainable workforce and, and, a, and an unashamed focus on improving uh, provision of care from the perspective of those delivering care, I think certainly for me is, is, is essential in, in some of our own quality improvement focus going forward. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, just one thing I wanted to touch touch upon, and I recognize that our audience, you know, will be from all different parts of the world, but something that I came across recently with NHS and most hospitals will now be adopting this is something called the patient safety incident response framework. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you have any familiarity with that and if you could maybe just, I don't know if you can share some views on that for the purpose of the audience. And I think it's a great, my, my understanding is a great tool for us to kind of start looking into and understanding how this helps us to do better, better QI work within organizations. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this development, Najib. Um, still, it's a, an, an evolving um, uh, area. And then I think there's lots of learning that will, will happen over the next few kind of months and years in terms of how to do that. We, we have now a few pilot sites that have been running this for several months, which are, are sharing their learning in terms of how they've used a systems lens to approach patient safety incidents is, is essentially what, what we're doing. And I, I think for me, the potential this comes with is taking away 
some of the often futile and wasted energy that are spent investigating individual incidents, which often, and your experience I'm, I'm sure is probably not dissimilar to mine, leads to a whole bunch of recommendations, most of which we already knew probably needed to happen, and many of those are impractical and, and probably aren't going to solve the problem in, in the short term. So this kind of really kind of micro lens approach on, on oftentimes really kind of traumatic and, and, and serious incidents is a way that we've been running patient safety and clinical governance in the past. What PISA brings is is the really strong steer to actually think about what are the causes of the causes, what, what are the uh, systematic challenges that have led to taking an example, rather than the pressure ulcer in Ward 9, the number of pressure ulcers that we're having across the organization, and what can we do to prevent uh, level 1 ulcers developing into level 2, level 3, and level 4, and therefore understanding what what what, cha what those changes need to happen, and deliberately designing um, and dining systems to try to, to prevent that. And one small example, just using that pressure ulcer example uh, incident as, as as a focus that I, I want my, my team or, or the team, person leading on, on, on um, healthcare association pressure ulcers is working on within my trust, is one thing that their, their team have identified is oftentimes it's the, the lighting within a particular cubicle or within, within a bay, which actually makes it much more difficult to identify early onset pressure ulcers. And so how can we improve the lighting, maybe reducing the density of the curtains, for example, or, or other systematic features around um, lighting within those wards, which means that we can thereby prevent some of those ulcers coming on and, and, and progressing later on, is, is a nice example of using that kind of PISA framework. Still lots to, to do, lots to develop, to develop, and, and crucially to be able to, to really fulfill that potential. Leaders within organizations are gonna have to take that significant and, and brave step really to step down from doing some of those in-depth um, you know, uh, clinical um, analyses which would otherwise be taking up much of the time of those, of those clinical governance teams. But I think it's, it's, it's doable and I think it, there's a real potential there and potentially it could make a huge difference. Hisham, you know, fantastic. You know, it's been so nice and refreshing listening to this take on QI which helps to really give that common thread to see how the only way we're going to make our system work better for us is through these QI approaches. And that QI isn't really a static silo. This is really quite permeable, but takes on these wider principles of leadership, of genuine inquisitiveness and engagement, and that human factors approach of acknowledging not just the system, but also the process and the people involved, and, and not being uh, you know, emotive about it and trying to actually be genuine in trying to understand where is the value for patients, because ultimately, again, that comes back to the point where we go to work every day is to do the best we can for our patients. So so thank you for that journey. I, you know, I really enjoy that. And those those narratives were very powerful to kind of thread those things together. I understand you're involved with an initiative called Hexitime, and I wonder if you're able to spend just a couple of minutes talking around that. Yeah, sure, for sure. Um, so Hexitime is a a community of improvers, so individuals from across health and care who are interested in biggest terms, I suppose, making things better for, for their patients and, and for their colleagues. And and I would encourage staff or who may be interested in this to, to join the platform. And what it provides for them is an opportunity to both 
ask as well as receive help from, from those individuals. It, it works on a, a time banking basis. So essentially it means that it uses time as your currency. And so you can support one someone else on, on a, a particularly kind of QI conundrum or support them with, with any aspect of improving services for, for a credit. And, 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 and there's a reciprocal basis as well. So if you're looking for help, you can use that same credit to kind of buy in extra help and support. And, and what's amazing about this community is it's grown from just a few individuals to thousands of individuals who, who are now on there with hundreds of hours of exchange. But by taking money off the platform, because we're using this kind of funny money time banking system, it, it actually um, diminishes bureaucracy and actually allows individuals to help and be helped in a way that they wouldn't otherwise have been done within your individual organization. So I, I'd really commend staff to have a look at that um, onto hextime.com, join up and join that kind of large and growing international community of improvers with that shared purpose of making care better for health and staff. Well, th thanks for that, Shannon. I think, again, th that, that aspect helps us to recognize you know, when you gave that traffic light analogy of, of being part of the system, mm -hmm. I think sometimes it, it needs us to kind of acknowledge some of the wider aspects of the system and engage with learning and improvement in other parts of the system to see what might be transferable to ours. So it sounds like Hexitime is a, a really interesting proposition to help us to, to refine some of those skills and contributions as well. Yeah. Um, I always like to kind of just have a quick chat about, you know, beyond the career, what about the person? So you're a pediatrician. I know you're a uh, a father as well. I wonder if there's any life skills that you'd like to share with us before we sign off for today. <laughs> I was just reflecting re recently, actually, this 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 might resonate with with some of the listeners, Najib. I, um, I remember my, when my daughter was just a couple of weeks old, um, and I, I I called a friend of mine, Tarek, who was my who was my peer at school, but he he'd got married and had kids a little bit earlier than I had. Was that you know I was, I was saying Tarek, you know, we're really struggling at the moment. Um, you know, my wife trying to breastfeed, she's got mastitis, she's in a lot of pain, she's not sleeping, I'm not sleeping. It's, it's really tough. And he said to me, Hisham, listen, you know, it's always tough at the start, but just remember it gets harder. So enjoy it whilst you can. And, and that same little girl is now 20 years old and she's at her first year of university. And uh, it's such a stressful experience taking her through that. I think he was, he was quite prophetic in what we we're describing. But I think there's something there in terms of the, the life um, lessons that probably can be extracted from that in terms of, you know, taking every, every step and enjoying those moments of, of pleasure and pain equally, I think, is, 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 is something I'd probably try, still trying to apply. Very much so. Hisham, thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm not sure about you, but listening to Hisham has really got me thinking about my own experiences of quality improvement and what some of the barriers may have been in achieving more sustained and successful outcomes. Being able to take a step back and take in that wider view seems to be critical in understanding what is actually occurring and where observed differences are amenable to change, as well as what interventions may be impactful. I think Hisham reminded us of the importance of knowing who to engage with, which voices to listen out for, and how to keep stakeholders involved, and that all of these are important strategic elements in strengthening our approach to QI. I was really taken by the notion of how QI can not only help sustain our own professional roles and well-being, but additionally that of the wider team and ultimately reduce the risk of patient harm. This all reminds me of a quote by the leading thinker in quality management, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, who said, 
a bad system will beat a good person every time. Surely then there's opportunities for us as practitioners striving to deliver good healthcare to lead and manage quality improvement initiatives with skill and insight to help beat the system. If you're a member of Medical Protection and interested in learning more about today's topic, or would like a certificate for listening today, please look in the podcast description for links for further learning. This is our last episode of the Real World series, so stay tuned for upcoming headliner podcasts hosted by Dr. Lynn McKinley. It has been a pleasure hosting the series for you. Take care.